Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Tim Selig for the second time. Tim's a conductor, singer, teacher, and motivational speaker. In addition to artistic director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, he continues a busy guest conducting schedule throughout the U.S. and across the globe. He's the conductor emeritus of the Turtle Creek Chorale, which he conducted for 20 years while also serving on the faculty of Southern Methodist University. Dr. Selig holds four degrees, including the Doctor of Musical Arts and the Diploma from the Mozartseum in Salzburg, Austria. He's authored seven books and DVDs on choral music. His recordings have been on Billboard Top 10 and iTunes Top 10 classical charts and a PBS documentary about his chorus's journey through the AIDS pandemic received the National Emmy Award for Best Documentary. He began his career as a signer and made his European operatic debut at the Staatsoper in St. Gallen, Switzerland. I hope I'm saying that all right. Interesting <laughs> facts include conducting the Guinness Book of World Records longest choral concert, carrying the Olympic torch as a community hero, and being the first openly gay man to conduct the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. His autobiographical memoir, which we'll be talking about today, is Tale of Two Tims, and it was just released in June. He's the proud grandfather of the amazing Clara Skye, Eden May, Ivy Hope, and Cora Rose. And I think I should add to Tale of Two Tims, the subtitle, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay. Welcome, Tim. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad to have you back. We, we of course, do know each other because we toured together. And Good. people can go uh, check out the interview I did with you and my choir director, Terrence Kelly. Um, gosh, was that 2017, 18, somewhere like that? Probably 18, um, yeah. So, of course, I learned, a tr- I knew some things about you from the film, from being on tour with you and having you tell your stories. But I learned so much more. I feel as, as if I have took a deep dive into your life and you were so uh, generous in your depiction of all the, the painful and, and wonderful events you've experienced. Thank you. So thank, thank you. you for that. You're, you're welcome. And the other thing I would say is we have a lot more in common than I knew. Uh, I'll name a few things. Okay. Uh, I grew up Baptist. My father was a minister. Where? Uh, He was, uh, he had churches when I was very little up to the time I was six. And then he worked for the American Baptist Convention. Oh, the American Baptist. Yeah, the American Baptist. That's better. Yes, crucial difference. Crucial difference. (laughs) Although not so much anymore. The American Baptist uh, body has gotten a lot more conservative, but when, when I was growing up, it, it was a very big difference, but still, uh, something in common. Yeah. I was on romper room as a child. Oh, no way. I was. Well, I'm going to tell that story because I, I know that, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about loss and disappointment. And I am so bitter that you were actually on romper room. I am stunned. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm not sure we can move forward. <laughs> but, you know, I, I I barely remember it, and I hadn't thought of it in so long. <laughs> and then I, I read your, your uh, you know. Oh, my gosh. Bit about just being too shy to come on. Yeah, I think I was very quiet because that's another thing we, we have in common. I was an excruciatingly shy child. Wow. Um, so it's rather surprising I did end up being on. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. So, you know, uh, we have a lot in common, including um, big losses in our lives, which we'll, we'll be talking about. Um, so what I want to start with, though, is what prompted you to write a memoir? We're in basically the same age range. Right. And uh, I think about it. I've even written some stuff, but it's so hard to capture a, a life at this point succinctly, right? There, so much has happened. Oh boy! No. And so, yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to know what what prompted you to uh, to take it on. Let's well, start I'll, there. I'll tell you really, really quickly, kind of what happened um, when I was fifty. So almost 20 years ago and I was living in Dallas and my, my uh, coming out story was, uh, was well known and, and some other things that had happened in my life. And certainly the, the really extraordinary success of the Turtle Creek Chorale as uh, the most recorded men's chorus in history. And uh, one of the finest men's choruses in the world was so exciting. And people would say, you should write a book. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to write a book, but I did take a month off to try and write some, memories at that point. I also joined the National Speakers Association and had an amazing coach who helped me craft my speech were I ever to give it. And she came back after um, three three or four months of working with me and came back and said, your topic is to be, and I was, there was a drum roll and I was waiting, uh, liberating change. And so that was the topic of my speech. And that was when I was 50. And then I got really busy, real busy, you know, waving my arms at the gaze, as I like to say. And um, I did some speaking and I've done speaking, but I never launched the career. So fast forward and here I am in in um, San Francisco and so much more has happened. Oh my goodness. In the last 20 years than I even could have ever imagined. And so people all along the way say your life has been so um, fun. I don't know fun, but a roller coaster of, of joys and sorrows and excitement and incredible highs, just incredible opportunities. And you should write a book. And, um, it dawned on me coming into this last year that uh, indeed I spent half my life, 35 years um, as a Southern Baptist, as a Southern Baptist minister of music, uh, straight acting, two children, all that stuff. And I love that straight acting. Acting. And, um, <laughs> I had a very much more <laughs> brief period of that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, and the, in January of this year, it will be 35 years uh, conducting LGBTQ choruses. So literally my, my life is divided in half that except for the, the music and a few things that we'll talk about later that carried over from life number one to life number two, certainly none of the cast of characters carried over, um, uh, or the wardrobe, but, um, except for that, they're two separate lives. And, um, I just thought, well, you know, uh, it's going to be half. So, and then we will discuss this later, but the, the sudden and tragic death of my daughter um, threw me into a tailspin, the likes of which I had never experienced. And absolutely. I, in fact, I, it stuck out in the book that you told the nurse, uh, Oh, that, I've experienced a lot of loss. Oh and she boy. said, none of them were your daughter. That just so sat, sat on my heart. It was one of that was moments when, um, in the emergency room and then they took me off to the side with counselors and said, you know, that she's, she's gone. And my, uh, professional 69 years of, of helping other people through this grief process just kicked in. And I said, the stupidest thing of, of my life, maybe, probably not. <laughs> uh, no, that's probably not. But let's as, not run a contest. Huh? Exactly. As it was recounted in the book, I said to the doctor and the social worker, I said, I I've experienced a great loss um through the AIDS pandemic. And um and the social worker just reached over and touched my hand and said, but none of them were your daughter. And that the the veil dropped. Uh, the the professional uh, minister dropped and then I was just dad. And yeah, it was a moment. 
of course i uh i was there at her at her memorial which was i <laughs> wish i could have a memorial like that well it was outrageous it was uh, oh my god it was, it was I, I said to a, a checker in a grocery store not long after that i can't even remember what made me say that i've decided that there need to be drag queens at my funeral uh-huh yep um <laughs> yep there were two things that when uh, when Coriana, my daughter, and her husband got married, uh, they had we had a huge party for them in Dallas, and it was a luau for their for their wedding party. And Coriana insisted on drag queens, and so we had drag queens. And one of the funniest stories of all that I have to tell is one of the drag queens. They were all friends of ours, and they came and they were passing out lays as they did at Coriana's memorial service. But um, we had we had a shuttle bus for family, for the Baptist family. So they were all arriving. And my niece got off, the big Baptist niece, got off the family bus and was looking at a drag queen, and they were wearing the exact dress. <laughs> it was a moment of just karma yes. came home and... <laughs> It was just awesome. So when Coriana died um, and we were sitting around with um, deciding on what this is and we knew it had to be uh, colorful and fun and we knew it was going to be Hawaii themed. And so we had to have drag queens again passing out lays to all of the attendees. But the addition that we didn't have at their wedding party were the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence because Clara uh, has grown up with the sisters and Easter is not Easter without eggs, Easter egg hunt with the sisters. So um, yeah, we had the drag queens and the sisters and um, Clara being Coriana's daughter. Right. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, you know, the thing that I appreciated too was that you're, it's true. There was a lot of joy. There was a lot of colorfulness. There were incredible costumes. There was right. uh tons of love of course but it you weren't there were also sincere expressions of loss there were um so many wonderful people who spoke not just family but um coriana had been a, a pediatric oncology nurse at ucsf and in dallas before that for 18 years and um she was a bright light and entered every room and um, was did pediatric hospice and brightened children's lives for those 18 years like none other. And I think the, the most poignant, um, for me, the most poignant as a dad, the most poignant speeches were from her doctors and nurses who served alongside her and were um, heartbroken. Mm, yes. And, and uh, reading that, reading about, the the loss of her in the book and also in the very same book um reading the separation from her that you experienced uh it it touched me so much how how the two of you came through that because um i have a daughter whose other mother separated me from her for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And um, I won't go into the details of that, but it was, it was actually the worst thing, the worst loss I've ever experienced. Right. Uh, because of, you know, not being able to parent my child. Right. Um, and uh, it's one of the great joys of my life that our relationship is intact that we found each other again right so that that really stood out that you two um were well, able we, to come uh, through that <laughs> uh, we went through the fire corianne and i went through the fire uh she was nine when i uh, when i divorced and came out and um yeah and we were best buddies through the thick and the thin and you know, there's all the story about her coming to Dallas and she was a, uh, a pudgy teenager and the, the gays, her new gay uncles, her gunkles, um, made her feel like a princess. And that's not the way she felt back home in Houston where she was. And, you know, the result of all of that were, um, uh, emotional scars that she lived with until, until her death. Um, and she went 
through my, uh, her own bulimic um, diagnosis and recovery, and uh, she went through my HIV positive episode, and we were just, um, yeah, we were souls that just held on to each other. My son was different, and um, he disowned me when he graduated from high school, and we were completely separate for six years with no, and and that was uh, much his mother's doing as as anything, you know, much like in your own situation. But uh, we're best friends now. We talk all the time, and um, he's the one that uh, had Eden May, who's five, and then had twins this this past year. The um, the other two, so I have four grand girls. Lucky you. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, we've started at the at the um, uh, timeline at the end of the timeline in a way. A little bit. Not that things haven't <laughs> happened since then <laughs> that we can also talk about. But when we come back from our first break, I really want to go back to that. Uh, the experience of coming out, because I would say that you had uh, one of the worst case coming out stories <laughs> that that I have ever uh, known about. Oh and, <laughs> and because the two of us uh, met going to the South and singing in churches, and one in particular... Yeah. Um, I realized the depth of what that must have, the difficulty that there must have been choosing to do that. It, it, it amplified in, in reading what happened to you. And yeah, oh boy, indeed. Um, so I, I think that's a, maybe the first huge loss you experienced. Would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, the coming out and losing everybody, everything, and everything, yes. and even my children. Yeah, losing everything. That would have been the first time I'd had, um, obviously, all the same things that other people have: career losses and uh, been turned of down. Course. The, of course, some of the some of the audition uh, stories of when I went to Austria to audition, and I was just heartbroken. And that turned out fine because I got hired in Switzerland. But for the moment, boy, yeah, it, was... it kind of landed on your feet. Oh, uh, well, you've landed on your feet every time, but that was a huge oh, blow. Boy. So I want to come that back was... from the break and talk about that at de- in depth. And listeners, oh. you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, connect on LinkedIn, sign up for email. There's also a link to BetterHelp. I've just entered a partnership with them to help people find affordable, accessible, and capable therapists through their online platform. You can check out their services as I, I did a deep dive to make sure I wanted to do the partnership at betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. And you would get a discount if you go through that link. And to find Tim Selig, go to www.timselig, and it's S-E-E-L-I-G.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more... Follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Tim Selig about his new memoir, The Tale of Two Tims, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay. And before the break, Tim, um, we just uh, introduced the, the subject, I guess, of um, the, the end of the first tap first half, Big Old Baptist. Right. Um, and one thing I pulled out of the book that just really um, spoke to me about what people go through like you and I when we come out, uh, I'm, I'm so rare because my parents caught up fairly quickly. Um, you know, lots of tears at first, but <laughs> they, they caught up and became fierce advocates, but that is usually not the case. Right. And uh, this thing I pulled out is what, first of all, I want to say any counselor who does what your counselor did and out someone, uh, you know, to their whole, and this does happen, I think, particularly with Christian counselors. Oh, yeah. But, but really that's, um, that's absolutely absolutely antithetical to my profession. Uh, that's like you should lose your license for it. Yes. So that stuck out to me. And then what they demanded of you, uh, reparative therapy, which means uh, excising who you are. Yeah. Um, sharing in Jesus' name, which means outing everyone else. Correct. Oh, yeah. Um stand in front of the church and allow two members of the ministerial staff to accuse you of the sin of homosexuality, acknowledge your sin, ask for forgiveness, etc., and cease your friendship with Barbara Bamberg. Yes. Who who was someone who cared about you and supposedly according to them aided and abetted you. Yes. Um so by the time you you are struggling with your sexuality as you were and actually going to counseling to try to figure it out. I would imagine that that rather confirmed your direction, actually. That's so unchristian and so horrendous. Right. How Um, could you go back from that? (laughs) you know, we, we, we've seen this. Uh, I've seen it throughout the rest of the half of my life of people who have indeed accepted that kind of abuse and accepted those kinds of terms um, because they're they're so deeply ingrained in um, in their church or their familial circle that they can't imagine what it, that they that you can survive the kind of leap that I took. And um, another reason for writing the the book, because um, as as people have said, uh, there's no one that has a better had a better Baptist pedigree than I did. Uh, this is not just going to church, much like you um, being a, a preacher's kid. I wasn't just a preacher's kid. Um, my dad was the vice president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for 30 years. And my mom was on the voice faculty of the music school of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary for 30 years. And the name Seelig is not like Smith or even Jones. It's uh, pretty um, recognizable. And uh, the two boys were destined to also be rising stars in the Southern Baptist Church, which my brother then did. And upon his death was the, the senior administrator pastor of a church with 60,000 members. So this is, um, this is not just indoctrination. This is no joke. Yeah. And so the coming out, um, when I was at the first Baptist church of Houston, serving as the associate minister of music, a small church of 22,000 members, um, this was not, um, yeah, that leap was beyond imagination. But I, you know, potentially, I, I, I've used the, the cliff um, as, a, as a metaphor a lot, and I would get close to it and 
Um, and then these really, really horrible people helped just push me on over. And as as I wrote, the the last two were both Christian counselors that just uh, you know just did the the final deeds. Uh, the the second one, the first one, when I was nineteen, I think I'm sure you loved that one. The Nazarene, when I was nineteen, when I was in college, and I said, I think I'm a homosexual, and he <laughs> took me through the Bible and gave me a test and said, you're not. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, Jesus. which is just as bad when someone <laughs> comes sharing the most, you know, the deepest and hardest thing to say. And then without another word, they just cast it off, right? I mean, that's that's just as bad as the other ones almost. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, then at, at 1920, you know, he, he started helping me, as I said, go through the Sears catalog of lady picking so that um, in a. So I could find me a wife at the Baptist University where I was. Anyway, um, fast forward with the wife and two children and um, a spectacular career because I'm a workaholic. Duh. And um, that's obvious. Then, yeah, then, right. <laughs> then we came to the to the end, and it was getting worse and worse, and things were terrible at home. And um, so I went to. Uh, anonymously to supposedly to Christian counselor hired by the first Baptist church. And, uh, it was not anonymous. He knew exactly who I was. And, um, I told him at that point that I had, uh, I'd been faithful to my wife for 10 years, but the last three years I had strayed, I had backslidden and told him the details. And he said, um, well, I just think you have such a wonderful ministry, you and your wife, and people love you so much. I think you should just take care of those, scratch those itches like you've been doing, you know, with a little this and that here and there, but don't let it ruin your ministry. And it just, um, that's really, that was the end for me of Noah. This is y'all, you people crazy. And I can't <laughs> believe you even said that. And um, so then I started uh, realizing that this is, uh, I can't live this lie. I, I've done a really good job um, of living the lie and I can't do it anymore. So that's when we went to the marriage counselor who outed me to my wife, my then wife, who then um, shared it with everybody we knew, which was, you know, one of the, one of the things I want to say a couple things about being gay. Um, one of the things that was horrific and also in hindsight, a gift is that everyone found out on one day, pretty much. Um, mm. So there, I didn't have to worry over the next month or so who knew and who didn't. How to tell, who to tell, when to but, tell. No, didn't have to. Nope. The Baptist grapevine. <laughs> I mean, that can't have seemed like a blessing at the time, Tim. It certainly did not. I had it. <laughs> it, it exacerbated my aloneness uh, when I when I was. When I left the house, there was no one. And that was certainly exacerbated by the fact that everybody knew. But the other thing that um, that in my now 34 years out of that life, I've never um, talked to someone who came out who has said, I wish I had waited. Mm. Everybody I've talked to has, has said, um, I don't know why I was so afraid. I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I had had the courage to do it because, you know, sometimes we lose everything, but we could have had five more years of losing everything <laughs> to rebuild. Uh, you know, it's um, our fears. Our fears you, are so strong, so strong. coming out that uh, we make this stuff up in our minds and some of it comes true. And, um, and then, uh, I, the other part about the, the children, um, my son who, uh, was just having none of it, um, wrote, and I, I think, um, I know you loved this. He actually wrote a little bit for the book and said, you know, I, I didn't understand. I was seven years old, but mm -hmm. as I grew into my teen years, um, I knew you, I knew I had been replaced by you being gay. Um, but as I watched it happen, I just didn't understand why you had to be the king of the gays. And <laughs> like, oh, wow. What, what a great distinction. <laughs> yeah, and my mom and dad, you know, uh, because I conducted the gay men's chorus in Dallas all those years, and they lived in Fort Worth, and the, the chorus began to 
grow in notoriety and then all of a sudden i'm in the paper and uh like again the, the selig name and um you can't hide and they're like why why do you have to tell these this story over and over about you being gay why do you have to keep say, talking about your coming out and i said okay mom and dad big old bap really big old baptist tell me what what was the day in your lives that changed everything for you the one day that you continue to talk about, I might add, that changed your life. Well, it's when we accepted Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Well, yes. And I asked them, and every day after that for you was different, right? Yes, every day was, was different. And I said, you know, the day I came out was like your conversion experience. Because the day I came out, everything after that has been different. It's been truthful. It's been joyous. It's been deep. So your conversion experience is much like my coming out experience. So why wouldn't I tell it? The other thing is that there's there's a sort of, um, I know you're not a victim, but there's a sort of blame the victim thing in there. Uh, you had nowhere to go to reform your life except the gay community. Right. Because it wasn't like you came out and people had a hard time with it and then they adjusted and then your life went on. Your life ended. It and ended. so to me, yeah. that seems like, and there's a line from the book that really stood out to me. If we need proof that we are who we are, if you weren't, if we weren't, you would never be who you are. All right. Uh, no one would choose to go through that unless that is truly who they are. Yes. No kidding. And it's kind of, it, it, there's kind of no way to um, bargain with that once you, once you know it, if you want to live a true life. It's, the, uh, it's unimaginable, really, that um, the, the, the Christian side and other, and other religions as well, I shouldn't just pick on them, cannot grasp that this is not a choice. It's not a choice. We don't wake up one day and go, this should be fun. <laughs> yes. Let's lose everything. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's end our life as we know it. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. even for me, and I have a very privileged story compared to yours, but even for me, uh, th there were very few people who lasted from from before to after. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, and part of that was that they didn't last and I moved far away because I needed to rebegin. Yes. Um, but, but a lot of it was just uh, people couldn't catch up at first. No, they can't catch up. And I had, uh, and, and you've heard me say, because it's in the documentary, um, out of those 22,000 people, not one person reached out to me. And I have clarified that with Barbara Bamberg, you brought her up, who was the pianist, because she never left. So she didn't have to reach out. She, you know, I, I did not get rid of her as my best friend. And <laughs> Why would you? You, right. you, you, you trashed the whole list there. Exactly. So <laughs> why get rid of her? <laughs> and the truth of the matter is there were a few really pious, self-righteous people that reached out to me and they absolutely wanted to take me to lunch and get me to change my mind or come to my senses. It was never out of compassion or tell me, tell me how you are. That was never part of what they were interested in. And so, yeah, I didn't take those lunch invitations. Well, and this is a smaller story but um, exemplifies the point of when a, and it's not always a religious group, but when any group thinks they're right and everyone else is wrong, it goes all over the place. For instance, uh, you had a best friend, Alan. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I had a best friend, Shelly. Um, so that resonated, you know, in middle school. She, right. I went to her house and had Seder. And oh, it my was gosh. It was the, this illuminating opening experience. Yes. Um, but around the same time, I went to my grandmother's house and, and she we got in a big argument because she said, um, you know, 
the Holocaust was punishment for the Jews not believing in Jesus. Oh, boy. Right? So I know you can relate to that kind of sense. If you're not with us, you're against us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, It's time for our our second break. And when we get back, I want people to hear uh, your, your book voice. Great. So when we get back, let's have you read the last chapter of your book. Wonderful. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief Host page. To find Tim Selig, go to www.timseelig.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Tim Selig, conductor of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus and the author of the Tale of Two Tims, Big Old Baptist, Big Old Gay. We're, we're foreshortening the second half. And so uh, I think it's just appropriate to start with the end of the book because you are pretty chronological. I am. Um, yep. So um, let's start with, with that. Wonderful. Um, and yes, the book is nice. Um, and yes, it's um, open and vulnerable. And I did, I, I left, I left nothing out and people are a little like you really, did you really want to tell that? And I'm like, I can't, you can't pick and choose here. Uh, <laughs> this is me. Take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. I mean, it's, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. And there's some, you know, um, important story when I was 19 um, and, and was molested. And then there's a important story of my own, infidelity leading up to my divorce and there's those stories and then my uh, inability to have found one person to stay with my whole life but I do read the audiobook Cheryl I'm not sure if you knew that but I read my own audiobook and it has some beautiful uh, guitar accompaniment by Bobby Joe Valentine and it's lovely so this will give you a little taste of what that's like my conclusions Looking back over my life, it's hard to imagine actually riding the roller coaster named Tim. I think some refunds might be in order. In hindsight, it was filled with more thrills and chills than any one human should have. Exhilaration, laughter, and pain. I get to look back as if the roller coaster had a rearview mirror and take pride and joy in all the twists and turns, even the scary ones. When all is said and done, it's been a life of joy. I got all strapped in for the ride on January 10th, 1951, and the journey began. It chugged uphill, passing all the things you've read about. Often, it dropped in a death-defying plunge. Some did not defy death and fell fell out along the way. But the roller coaster continued up and down, round and round, and a couple times it did the loop-de-loop that keeps the stomach unsettled. As the coaster slowed, the ups and downs were supposed to get smaller. Oops, but it does eventually slow down and give time to reflect on why the hell you ever got on it in the first place. I've been at the edge, 
I've imagined the world would be a better place without me in it. I had one of those moments less than a year ago as I stood at the edge of a massive cliff in Bodega Bay with crashing waves on the rocks. It was a cliff where, one year earlier, I had stood with Coriana, arms around each other as we shared the awe of looking at the mighty power of the ocean she loved so much. This time there was no Coriana to hold. I looked down and I saw her in the waves, on the rocks, on the surf. I wanted so desperately to join her wherever that might be. It would have been easy, so easy, had I been there alone. It may have come to pass, but I wasn't. There was someone there to walk up and put his arms around me as I wept. Thank you, Bobby Joe. Then, much like the cemetery scene in Steel Magnolias, tears dissolved into laughter as I realized snot had run down him in a mustache and beard and not a tissue to be found. Coriana would have loved it. She and Judson, her brother, had a thing for snot, boogers, and other body oddities. How does one move from empty to full? When I was 35, I learned there was no one there but me alone in a motel room, cut off from the life and people I had known. I learned that the words so many had used before were no longer soothing or encouraging. Oh, I had hurt before, but I'd always been surrounded by people and lots of advice on what I should hang on to. This was my first time to be on empty. No one to even get me to the next station. Nope, just me, a vibrating bed, a pay-as-you-go television, and a few quarters. I slept well. For the first time, the heavy millstone of living a lie had been lifted from my shoulders. And then I got up. Although emotionally bankrupt, I was hungry. I went to the Luby's cafeteria next to the Motel 6 where I was staying. Right there before my eyes was the answer to my empty stomach, at least. Watch out, cafeteria ladies, with your fetching hairnets. Here I come. In previous visits, when the first helper said, Salad for you, I asked for my usual lime jello with crushed pineapple and cottage cheese. Next came the entrees, or the entries, as we call them in Texas. Chicken <laughs> fried steak with cream gravy. Then the sides, black-eyed peas and collard greens. I'd have the jalapeno corn- cornbread to sop up the pot liquor from the greens. Finally, I'd top it off with lemon meringue pie. Today, rather than all those southern delicacies at Luby's, I was going through the cafeteria line of life. My tray was completely empty. I could choose anything I wanted. It had been cleared off. No one was there to tell me what to eat or how to eat it or what blessing I should say before the first bite. No one was there to criticize me for my choices during previous visits. I was truly free. The truth had done that, set me free. The things I put on my tray that day were music, empathy, humor, and truth. The approval I had been seeking all my life was given freely. It was in a simple word from a cashier at the end of the cafeteria of life. She was standing there in her little waitress outfit. Okay, it wasn't little at all. It was well used from years of wear and tear, stained by beets and collard greens. She wasn't special or beautiful in the world's eyes. Truth be told, her eyeliner and shadow were a little excessive for my taste. But she was not there to judge what was on my tray. She didn't look at me with pity for my losses. She had lived a hard life herself. She didn't need anything from me. She didn't have anything particular she needed to say. I pulled out my Apple Pay, and she said, Oh, honey, you've already paid for these. There's no charge, and you chose well. Those are my favorites, too. I'm just tickled pink. God bless you. But I needed one more thing. I needed to know it all the way from my bald head to my toes and from the bottom of my heart to my befuddled brain. I needed to know that all I needed or would ever need was right there inside me. It wasn't in a book, even the good book. It wasn't in the cliches repeated so many times in my youth that they became a part of me. Call that indoctrination or brainwashing. Nope. I needed to know I was enough. Lo and behold, the cashier at the cafeteria gave it to me with a smile. She said my choices were great, and she blessed me. Maybe that beautiful, life-worn, hard-working woman who gave me life's riches at no charge was actually God. She wanted nothing. She required nothing and didn't judge my tray. Who knew you could find God? At Luby's Cafeteria. <laughs> That's not the end of the book, but I'll stop there. 
You know, uh, of course, I, I met you beyond the point when you thought you were going to retire. Right. I was also very aware of that in the book. And uh, after you thought you were going to retire, you you pulled <laughs> things in quite a bit and all that. Suddenly, the SFGMC, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, is looking for they a conductor. Came a, a call in, and uh, and you had to apply. And uh, we, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Nope. But. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that because I think it's important. That's, that's kind of what came of all this loss in yeah. a way. Yes. And I loved uh, when they asked you what you could bring to the job. That was the funniest thing ever. And you said empathy, a sense of humor and musicality. Uh-huh. Yeah. I bet that they didn't hear that from anyone else. No, they were tapping on the on the microphone or the speaker to go out. He must not understand. He, he, <laughs> he is daft, as they say. He's lost it. Um, yeah, uh, because that's at this point, that's it. And you can read my you can read my bio and <laughs> which you already did, which was amazing. Thank you. Um, but those aren't those aren't the great gifts Uh and the musicality part is just interesting, probably. Um, I'll, I'll briefly tell you that one because um, I've, I've honed musicianship and people do hone musicianship their whole lives. I've done that my whole life. But musicality is inborn. And um, being able to bring out from people that, that musical expression that gives you the chill bumps. Those you can't learn it in college. There are not enough degrees to do that. So, the musicality uh, I absolutely learned from day one from my mother and from being in the church and being around people that understand that music is not the end; it's a means to the end. Mm -hmm. And um, for people for whom music is the end, that's great. Good for you. Um, it's just not what my life has been about. It's interesting too, Tim, uh, you know, if people haven't heard our other interview, they don't know all the details about the tour we were on, um, but it was quite unlikely. I'm in a gospel choir. Uh, yeah. It's interfaith, it's inner everything, but it's a gospel choir. Yes. And uh, you do choral music by and large or choral arrangements anyhow. Um, and yet it seems so serendipitous that these particular two choirs went on that tour together because, because you and Terrence have that in common, I would say. Oh, we sure do. We, we grew up at the feet of our parents who instilled those kind that kind of music in us and, and instilled exactly what I was saying about the power, the power of the music. And yes, we have that. And we are, we are brothers from different mothers for sure. And, and so then as a participant, I feel as if all of each of your life experiences, losses, uh, certainly yours, and his too, uh, all of it is embedded in what that became. And of course, then losses you've had since, you've had as you, right? <laughs> Right. We carry we carry everything we've been into the next experience, and they don't they don't stop. We're still, you know, you're gonna you probably do a sequel in ten years, right? I I, I don't know that I'm gonna uh, be writing anything in ten years, but um, <laughs> you, you never know. know. I, I've I, met a lot of authors that do. Right? <laughs> I came. I'm, maybe I will. I came here in the January of 2011, and um, so. The um, January of 2020, which just passed, was the beginning of my 10th season. How exciting. And I will not conduct a single concert in my 10th season as the artistic director of the Gay Men's Chorus. Not yes. once. Just given skipping that, the whole 10th season. Given that uh, people listen to these shows way after the moment they are recorded, right. I have to say we are living in shelter in place and any wise choir needs to not be singing in the same Correct. room right now. Yes, we will. We will and look back on this. Isn't this, that a weird loss? Yes. Um, no, no community 
of um, choir and rehearsals and singing, not not for the entirety of really 2020. And we'll we'll uh, we'll let the future take care of itself about when that when that might change. Right. But for me, um, I just have to put in here that the thing that has sustained me in periods of deep grief, like when my wife died and and other times uh, that have been grievous has been music. Mm -hmm. And so to be in this time where we've all lost the lives we had um, before, before COVID to one degree or another, to not have that outlet has been difficult. Yes. Uh, I was conducting gay choirs during the AIDS pandemic and so now pandemic number two in these short years is almost more than than we can bear, but it's not. And we are singing and making virtual choirs and getting together as best we can. And, you know, thank goodness for Zoom. Yes, we are starting to, uh, you know, the creative part is happening as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, We've recently collaborated on a on a video, which I can't wait to see, um, of the song "Better." Your choir and my choir, yep. and I cannot wait to see that because having fresh music is just yes, uh, too great. Okay, well then I won't tell and you. I, 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 we've run out of time, unbelievably. No. <laughs> I could spend another hour with you for sure. Oh, but you. thanks for being with me today. You're so welcome. Thank you. And, and you can find Tim, once again, at www.timseelig.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Abre mi corazón.